0: Grace, mercy, and love have no boundaries. They are attitudes to be cultivated and principles to aim for. That's the idea I want to try to bring to you this morning. We're looking at Romans 15, 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Let me read it for you as we begin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to edify him. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who approached thee fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think the first thing I'd like to do this morning is sort of check out the who's who and the what's what in chapter 14, because for me there was some key confusion So in chapter 14, we realize, and then looking at 15, that there are several Greek words for both strong and weak in the New Testament. And here in Romans 15.1, the word for weak is different than the word for weak in 14.1. And so if we were to give 15.1 a literal rendering, it would say, We then who are able ought to bear or carry the infirmities of the unable. And so that would lead us to ask, what is it that the unable are not able to do? And if I was to summarize that whole idea in Romans 14 and 15, I would say that they are unable to see that walking in Christian faith is more about the attitude of your heart in response to God's grace mercy and love for each of us, rather than seeing the Christian walk as maintaining some subjective moral boundary that we could establish. And so these infirmities of the week were most likely holdovers from Pharisaical righteousness, which Jesus spoke often about. The ESV says that the strong ought to bear with or carry or sustain the failings of the weak. And so this phrase, failings of the weak, is variously translated in different English translations as their scruples or their misgivings, their leeriness or their suspicions. The weak have a doubting conscience about the freedoms that their strong brothers are exhibiting. And so these failings of the weak are their mistaken views as to what walking in faith should look like. Now, the strong also have a weakness. They tend to despise or mock or treat with contempt the weak brother because of the way that he likes to sort of over-deliberate about matters that the strong brother believes don't need to be questioned. And the weak have a weakness, aside from their leeriness and suspicions of the strong brother's Christian walk. They tend to be judgmental towards the strong Christian as not being serious enough, perhaps, in their discipline in their Christian walk. So, we should take some time to think about what it is that the weak are suspicious of then. What are they What are they leery of? What are their misgivings? And clearly from Paul's perspective, as you begin to categorize the, the who's who and the what's what of chapter 14 and 15, the weak are defective in their perception of the Christian faith. They see the gospel narrowly or childishly. They see certain aspects of the strong brother's freedom as threatening. And in verse 2, Paul commands the church that the only Christian principle we need to attend to is to aim for the benefit and the advantage of our Christian brother. And the greatest good that we can bring to a Christian is to build them up in their Christian character and in their understanding about who God is. Now if Paul were to ask the weak if they are among the weak, they would undoubtedly say no, the ones you're calling strong are the weak ones. They would say that the strong are the weak ones because they aren't disciplined enough in their approach to worshiping God or walking in the Christian faith. And so to be honest with you, I I have been struggling a little bit with some of the practical aspects of this area of Romans. The whole passage, I think, is kind of tricky because it's not that the weak are carnal. It's not that they aren't believers and that they're doing things in their flesh. It's not that they're not regenerate. It's not that they aren't saved, as Paul said in 14, or that they're not a brother in Christ or in the process of being sanctified by the Spirit of God. But I can't help wondering that Paul is thinking that something isn't quite right in their understanding it may not be heresy and it certainly isn't compared to the other problems that Paul had in Colossae and in uh, Galatians and Corinthians but there is something sort of embryonic about their walk that grows out of the what I'm calling the the whispering of a legalistic conscience or spirit. Paul is concerned about their over-conscientiousness of the weak and their hesitation about the right moral course of action to take on certain issues. Where the weak should be focused is in walking with their heart, captivated by God's grace and mercy which is the framework for how we go about loving God and loving our fellow men. And it's really hard for someone else to determine how your actions are a reflection of your heart motivation. And I think Paul has this underlying concern that there needs to be a way to address this legalistic conscience without correcting it, Legalistically. And the way you correct it is by demonstrating your sincere love for God and your brother. Perhaps he doesn't want to create a new set of rules for the weak to add to the ones they can't seem to break away from yet. And so he's asking us to think about I think, how can I be the most useful to my weak brother? by showing him that the way we build each other up is by loving each other the way that Christ loved us. It's not by demanding that the weak brother change their behavior by following a list of fixes that will make them become a strong brother. Because that will just encourage them to be sinful if we ask them to behave in a way that doesn't line up with their consciences what Paul was saying in chapter 14. And because the Christian faith is about centering your heart on God's grace and His mercy and His love as the most significant aspect of it, there aren't any rules to how you should go about loving God and loving your brother. Because as soon as you view loving God and loving your brother through the grid of Rule keeping, you make it something other than a heart issue. And I'm wondering if Paul is worried because that legalistic conscience, the weak brother falls prey to, reminds Paul of what he became when that legalistic conscience of his was left unchecked. Because what Paul knew was that the heart of the Pharisee is really indifferent to God. You didn't do what you did because you loved God if you were a Pharisee. You did what you did because you thought that was what it was to be righteous. And it had nothing to do with loving God. And so let's think for a minute about what this legalistic conscience looks like. Conscience is that thing that each of us have it's that inner voice or that gut feeling about things it's the place where we morally approve of what we've done or it's the sense, it's the sense of guilt that convicts us that we've done something that we shouldn't have done it's the place in our brain and in our heart that looks back and thinks about how good the choices might have been that we didn't make. The conscience considers and weighs out what has been done and what should be done and either accuses us or excuses us. And Paul was teaching in chapter 14 that each man has to let his own conscience run its course in his own life as God calls each one of us to live a life before him. And the weak brother stumbles in that area, because he doesn't recognize that nothing gets in the way of that life of faith more than a legalistic conscience. And it was the duty then of the strong brother to seek the weak brother's spiritual improvement and to think how he could raise him up and edify him. And so you can imagine the concern Paul has for someone who demonstrates a weak conscience or a doubting conscience, whose conscience is troubled about being condemned by the wrong moral decision that they might make. Because it shows that he's not really trusting God from his heart all of which really threatens a freedom to live a joyful and trusting life that faithfully loves the Lord. And because walking with a heart that is full of faith releases you from the demands of a clinging, boundary-making, legalistic conscience. It frees you from that, to love God as you see fit in your own mind. And at the heart of it, in their weakness, the weak are unable to fully trust in God's holiness and his imputed righteousness, which is the catalyst for that moral freedom we have in Christ. The weak don't completely trust the promises that Christ has fulfilled. All of those legalistic requirements of the law that these weak brothers are still clinging to. Luther summarized this problem very well. He wrote a great deal about the conscience, in fact. It was studying the book of Romans that awakened his conscience to the restricting, faith-killing indulgences that were required by the Roman Catholic Church. It was while he was studying the book of Romans that he became convinced that All of life is lived and judged by the conscience as it lives its life out before God, in front of God, in the presence of God. That is what Scott was referring to last week. And Luther said, this is the heart of Christianity. The conscience is the self living before God. And the self is condemned by the law. But when the gospel came, it was completely set free by the gospel. The self is put to death by the curse of the law, but it's raised to new life because of the grace of Christ. And he said, for one must know how one stands with God if the conscience is to be joyful and secure before the judgment throne of God. And when that legalistic conscience that's born out of a subtle doubting begins to question whether God is really entirely gracious, merciful, and forgiving to us, then that mindset of the weak brother actually doesn't have a God that is gracious and merciful and entirely forgiving. And that's the power of the conscience and the need to sort of Question where you're going with your mindset. And I think that's at the heart of this issue for Paul. He's just saying that if our conscience isn't free from that restricting legalistic framework, it can wreak havoc on how we perceive who God is. And how we understand our salvation and the work that Christ has done and how we live our lives faithfully before God. and Luther said as he believes so he has therefore you can't know that god is gracious toward you except through faith and that's the danger of that legalistic conscience because it always questions the character of god and Luther said if if he believes god is gracious and merciful then he's saved And his conscience is free from the guilt that's associated with law-keeping. If he does not believe God is gracious and merciful, he becomes hampered by a need to mix faith with that legalistic conscience that condemns him. And I think Paul was very aware of how his own legalistic conscience started out as a subtle whispering doubt. About God's gracious character towards men. It's kind of a problem that's built into the Pharisaic mindset. It started out perhaps as a desire to love God, but it morphed into abstinence and guilt. A Pharisee's walk became a walk of legal obedience. Not an obedience that treasured God for who he is. His walk became burdensome to him rather than a delight. It began to find its satisfaction in duty and performance and not just simply in loving God for who he is. It turned Paul's fervency for God into formality and rigid boundaries. And left unchecked, Paul's legalistic conscience blossomed into a a self-love and a self-serving self-righteousness and a pretentious holiness that didn't arise out of a heart that genuinely loves God. And I think it's fascinating to think about how Paul was awakened from this legalistic conscience. He describes how this happened in Romans chapter 7. It was the 10th commandment that was the beginning of his Pharisaic ruin. It was, thou shalt not covet, that revealed to Paul his deep moral corruption that couldn't be fixed by trying to establish legalistic boundary markers any longer. It's amazing because he thought he had convinced himself that he was so close to moral purity by following the dictates of his legalistic conscience. In fact, concerning the law he wrote in Philippians 3, he claimed he was almost completely free from any guilt before God. Imagine the moment you realize the extent of that deception. What have you been deceiving yourself with? Acting like you're righteous? But then his his eyes were opened when he saw that thou shalt not covet forbids us from being rivalries between our brethren and between other people. It convicts us of our heart's jealousy and dissension and a discontent focused entirely on what God had not provided for you, but it provided for someone else, and now you want to have what he has, because God hasn't given you what you want. Isn't that exactly the problem that we're talking about, sort of, in in Romans 14 and 15? The dissension and the, the rivalry between brethren. And I think Paul was just broken when that realization came. He just realized the emptiness of his legalistic conscience. And I think he just saw that a restricting, boundary-making mentality is rather feeble. In fact, that's the definition of the word for weak in 14.1. Receive one who is feeble in the faith. That feebleness is just kind of out of step with a mature Christian faith that's focused entirely on grace and mercy and love. It's just out of step with it. But imagine with me for a minute how that feebleness might manifest itself. It'd be like us being here in the worship, in the sanctuary, and hearing some low-pitched whining and negative mumbling from the corner of the sanctuary while we're here praising God for His love and for His mercy to us. A whining that that wants to interrupt people's pleasure but it can't do it other than being awkward. It's a whining that felt uncomfortable around genuine celebrations of joy because it It might get out of hand. It's an attitude that resulted in feeling like it had to be carrying around the nightstick of judgment because nobody knew about holiness better than Paul. An attitude that feels motivated to put up no trespassing signs all over the place. It mumbles excuses where people gather for what they can't do or what they should be doing. Imagine this kind of confrontation with Jesus. Jesus, yeah, I was standing over there in the corner watching you and the disciples. And I noticed that your disciples aren't washing their hands the way the elders said that they should. And just an FYI, that's that's defiling to us. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, on Saturday, well, I was kind of following you guys around, you know, from a distance. Just making sure, Jesus, that you were paying attention to whether you were monitoring your disciples' behavior. And I noticed when you guys were grabbing the grain in the field on the Sabbath, that Jesus, you didn't try to correct them. It's, it's not good. So, so I went ahead and put a no trespassing on Saturday sign around that field for you. It's okay. It's okay, Jesus. I took care of it. You know what that thinking is, folks, really? It's just completely out of step with grace and mercy and love. It's not oriented towards the truth of the heart of Christianity. It's not motivated towards loving God and loving your brother and helping your brother to do the same. That legalistic conscience is just working on the wrong front all the time. But, there's always a theological but. This is where it gets kind of shady, I think, and kind of grayish, and a little bit bit difficult for us weak Christians, because, you know, we we like to dissect things just right. See, when you have that pie and you cut it into ten ten pieces, this side has to be equal to this side. It's got to be right down the line for us weak Christians. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that Someone can't be sincere in their weak conscience. People are sincerely wrong all the time. In fact, I kind of think the legalistic conscience really begins as a sincere gesture. It probably doesn't start off with a desire to make boundary markers for how everyone should start living their lives. But see, there's a lot of ways this can kind of get really tricky. And we have to be careful about how we see things with our heart. Because, folks, I'll tell you, it's easy to be religious when you have a list of regulations to follow. It's easy to tell who's in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom simply by reading the list and watching what they do. If you're hampered with a legalistic conscience... Thinking about regulations to follow may be a great way to be a religious Pharisee, but it's not the way to be a Christian. Because that thinking doesn't care about what's going on inside someone's heart. And it was so easy for the Pharisee to check his list about who's in the kingdom of God and who's not. Yep, they're all still there. Sinners. Prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, they're still outside the kingdom. They're always and forever outside the boundaries of the kingdom. It's on the list right here. I got it. And that's why they've got to learn the rules. But to Jesus, it was all about the orientation of your heart toward him what is a sinner's heart's response to grace and mercy, was what he was looking for. Because the moment that sinner, or that prostitute, or that tax collector, or that leper, had hearts that became oriented toward the the center of Christianity, toward loving God and loving Christ because of their mercy and grace, and then growing out into loving your brother, Jesus declared them to be the kind of people that were entirely in the kingdom of God. There's a great illustration of this. I'm just going to briefly share something with you. It's in Luke chapter 7. You remember when there's a Pharisee who invites Jesus to have lunch with him, and it says in Luke seven thirty six. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And I love how Luke lays this out. He says, And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him because... And then Jesus lays out the parable of the two debtors, and he ends it with this, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. You see, it was Jesus recognizing the amount of love that she was demonstrating towards his grace and forgiveness that proved to him that's the kind of heart that's in the kingdom right there. The love that poured out of her heart for Jesus proves that she is inside the kingdom and not outside the kingdom, the way the Pharisee was thinking. And why? Because it's all summed up in one thing that Christ said, Love God and love your neighbor. That's the heart of all the Ten Commandments, even the Sabbath. So we see how silly it is then to try to establish rules for how someone should love God or love their brother. But it's difficult because there's a sense in which Christian discipline is a useful thing to us in our Christian walk, and discipline can help us achieve some positive and beneficial things. And it can begin as a sincere desire to love God and be committed to Him. I was struggling with trying to think of how I was going to categorize things in this chapter, and I met with Travis, I don't know, at least twice about this passage. And we were talking about some examples of this, and I appreciated what he said about how you could make this application to daily devotions, for example. Because on the one hand, we want to be devoted to God and to His Word. And it's going to sanctify us as we grow in our understanding of him. We want to be devoted to growing in him. And it's good to have this discipline to do it regularly. And it's not just the discipline of saying, well, I read the word either. But taking the time to meditate on it and think about it deeply and pray that its impact would be positive in your life and grow you closer to Christ. But you know, as soon as we start making it a rule that we need to be in the Word for a certain number of minutes or a certain number of hours every day, we start missing the mark and the real benefit we're trying to get from the devotions. And we miss the mark even more when it becomes equally important to us to have other people think about it exactly the way we do. And then the motives for why we are devoting ourselves to God to begin with are completely lost in the legality of it. And then if we fail to maintain that strict regimen that we set up for ourselves, we start to get this self-loathing and this failure to stay with the program. It starts to set in and affect our conscience. And that's when devotions become a burden rather than a delight to be in His Word. That's when your devotions become based on a legal obedience to your conscience rather than just a desire to grow closer to God in His Word. And then the benefit of devotions can become burdensome instead of delightful. It can become a formality rather than a loving fervency as performing a duty with reluctance rather than just desiring to be satisfied in Christ. And so Paul speaks to both groups, to the weak and the strong, in Romans 15, that whether your tendency might be to flaunt your freedom and despise or mock or treat with contempt the weak brother because of the way he likes to over-deliberate about things, or whether your tendency might be to act as your brother's judge, condemning him for not being as disciplined as you are in your devotion to God. He writes, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edify him. Paul lived by this desire. In 1 Corinthians 10, he wrote, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many might be saved. And Paul learned this from the master of self-sacrifice. And he writes and transitions into the idea of what Christ's sacrifice was. And in verse 3, he says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. In verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by patience and by the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. One author explained those words, in those verses this way. He said, if as a man, Christ had pleased himself in the use of his liberty or in the enjoyment of the rights and privileges which his own righteousness had acquired, what would have come of our salvation? But he had only one thought, he said, to struggle for the destruction of sin. Without concerning himself about his own well-being, or sparing himself, he wrote, even for an instant. That was the phrase that got me thinking. Even for an instant. We know Christ was no self-pleaser. But it's kind of different to think of him as being completely devoid of any interest in pleasing himself. If he had been, he would never have willingly given up to such a gruesome fate as the cross. And so Paul writes that all scripture was written to instruct us about this self-denying, patient love that God has for sinners, which is perfectly exemplified in the life of Christ, who is the foundation for our Christian comfort and hope. And it's the scriptures that show us in the history of redemption exactly how patient God is with each one of us. So let's just pick like the last 4,000 years. How many millions and millions of people have been the recipients of God's grace? And then think of the millions of varied sins of those people wearing down God's patience day in and day out. And forget the impossibility of trying to count them. Just think about the depth of the wickedness and the hatred those sins added up to. And then consider that right now, in a breath, he could strike down all of us in a moment. Or maybe maybe worse, just simply abandon us. He doesn't need us to fulfill anything in himself. And yet again, think of Israel's unbelief and rebellion alone from the time of Moses to Jesus. And God says to his covenant people, the people of his promise, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and denying people. Let's think about that verse 4 again. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that by patience and by the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't consider a few examples from the Old Testament that describe for us the patience of God. Remember in Exodus thirty-three thirteen, Yahweh is meeting face-to-face with Moses. And Yahweh says, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. And then Moses said, Please show me your glory, Lord. And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. But look what he says his goodness Looks like. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The author makes the same kind of connection in Psalm ninety-nine eighteen. He says, O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. This proclaiming God's name, his character of forgiveness and mercy, is often described in connection with his anger. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, in Joel and Nehemiah and Jonah and in the Psalms. And in the New Testament, that's exactly the same character we see God displaying on the cross of Christ. We see both God's wrath for sin and his mercy in saving sinners in that one event at the cross. And so the scriptures show us again and again that God balances the fury of his vengeance against the sinner with the greatness of his patience and mercy on those whom he redeems from sin. God is not only the God of wrath, but he's the God of wrath, in order for his mercy to have meaning. Here's another example from the scriptures. Remember that God raised up Pharaoh for a particular reason. And at the seventh plague, he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that, if you don't release my people, I'm going to send all my plagues, it says, to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then he says, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you. I'm going to send those plagues to that hardened and rebellious heart of yours because I'm patient even with you, Pharaoh whom I've raised up, so that I might demonstrate my power in you. He says, I could have reached out with my hand and struck you with all those plagues all at once, but I didn't do that because if I did, you would have been completely destroyed. And so this sets the stage for Paul's discussion in Romans 9, where he shows us more clearly about the connection between God's patience and his power. Paul writes in Romans 9.21, Doesn't the potter have power or authority over the clay to make one vessel for honor if he desires, and another for dishonor? Doesn't God have the authority to raise up Pharaoh to demonstrate whatever he wants with him? And then Paul, wanting us to think outside the box, I think, about the extent of God's power and his patience to withhold the use of it, writes as if to say, think of the whole thing like this. What if, when God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power in him, What if instead of pouring out the plagues to demonstrate his power, instead he showed how patient he was in bearing with the trials and the troubles of the vessels of wrath, instead of avenging their wrongdoings with his wrath? What if God, listen to this now, what if God, it says, Wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. I think Paul's just saying, what if his long suffering is actually a demonstration of his power and patience with himself? We we read the idea of long suffering and we think, Oh, he's long suffering with us but does he mean that he's long-suffering with himself? His patience taking the upper hand over his power and vengeance and anger with our sin. I don't know how to think of this, but that God's patience and long-suffering towards his creatures is his power over himself. His patience is the hiding of the power of His fury. But for the infinite restraint God puts upon Himself, this fallen world wouldn't even exist for a moment. So the Scriptures instruct us that that mercy withholds judgment. Patience curbs God's power and thus the patience of God becomes the salvation of us. You know, I don't know if it works this way for Travis when he's preparing to preach on a topic, but I can't tell you how many times this week I was confronted with how impatient I am. It's just kind of weird. Um... You know, it's not like I'm regularly struggling with impatience. But as I was wrestling with and thinking what God was saying about how patient he is, I just got continuously confronted with my own impatience. And I can't tell if it's a good thing or a bad thing in my marriage with Sheila, how easy it is for her to see it when I'm impatient. It kind of starts off with a breathing thing a little bit. And so, even sometimes at church, I go, you're breathing that way. And then I'm kind of... And you know, the funny thing is, she doesn't even really try to fluff it in any way. She just comes right out and says very, very privately and very patiently, and really very sweetly, she says, you are really impatient sometimes. And I used to try to deny it, and she'd just say, oh, uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. But here's, here's how I know that the scriptures are for my personal instruction, not just instruction about God. You see, I'm very comforted when I read Scripture that through all of my, my shortcomings and my idiosyncrasies and my failures and my 31 plus years of sinful rebellion and my current awareness of how impatient I am, what stands out the loudest in the Scriptures is God's constant affirmation of me as one of His children in spite, in spite of who I am. And then when I reflect again on the story of redemption and recognize the level of God's patience with all of us, you know, I honestly thought about this week that I don't really know anything about patience at all when I contemplate the patience of God. I don't have a clue about it. But listen, if you want to have a conversation with me about theology, Corey, you know, Dan, Lindy. Andy, Travis, Josh, anyone, Roger. If you want to have a conversation with me about theology, I am all the way in. We will talk until we can't talk anymore. Yeah, you should feel sorry for all of them. (laughs) But if you want to know about patience, you, you don't want to come and talk to me. Anything you want to learn about patience, you can learn from the scriptures and from this right here. This is everything you need to know about what patience is. That God has fully demonstrated the perfection of his infinite patience with his church in the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ that has forever satisfied his fury against the sin of believers. All you can do is by faith completely trust that he loves you in Christ. If you want God's instruction about patience, if you want the clearest definitive illustration of it, then just park your heart right here and start contemplating putting all your faith right here, will free you from a troubled and legalistic conscience. Well, Paul's bringing us to the conclusion then in these last two verses. And he's giving us something to think about. He says in verse 5, May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Christian principle to aim for. Cultivate an attitude in your heart that loves God and loves your brother. That's the rule. And that looks different to different people. And so finally, Paul offers up a prayer asking the God of steadfastness, the God of patience, the God of endurance, the God of comfort, the God whose patience and grace and mercy and love for us all is perfectly articulated in the cross of Christ, who saved us. And he asks God to grant to us an attitude that thinks the same thing toward each other, that God thinks towards us. Paul is saying that we should see God's patience and his love for us as a wonderful display of his love for us in the cross of Christ. But folks, this isn't going to happen in the flesh. God alone can give the patience and comfort, Paul says, not only in the scriptures, but by his Holy Spirit, as Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 15, where he says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul prays that we might learn from God's patience and His comfort, the value of sharing the same heart together about who God is, with one mouth giving Him praise, showing forth His glory. And it's not unusual that God would do this because God is three persons in one who all sound forth the same glory. They share the same substance. They have the same goals. They have the same desire. They have the same motive to show forth God's glory in redeeming a lost people to Himself. And just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit glorify God in complete unity, God is glorified by Christian unity and our one-mindedness about who God is and the work that he's done. This is the scope and the design of everything Paul has been speaking about in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we just ask for your Spirit to be with us, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to show us why you are so worthy of our trust, why you are so good and merciful to us father direct our hearts to contemplate what it is to love you and to love jesus for your grace and mercy to us may your name be praised and lifted up now in the songs that we sing and may you be glorified in that in christ's name amen